Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> In our Old Testament reading this morning, and the sermon text is Psalm 80. And our New Testament reading <clears throat> we found in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you would turn to Psalm 80 and put your finger there to hold that place, and then to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> We'll be looking at verses 21 and 22 in Hebrews chapter 11. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for the stock that your right hand planted. And for the sun you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. And then from Hebrews chapter 11, begin reading with verse 21, just 21 and 22, two verses here. We read, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave concerning his bones. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, your word read and heard, and that in itself is a means of grace and a blessing to our souls because your spirit illumines your word to our hearts and to our minds that we trust 
that your spirit is at work doing that in us. But now, Lord, we come to the preaching and proclamation of your word. Your servant stands before you in need of the unction of the Holy Spirit to proclaim your gospel with power. And, Father, we see your gospel here in this text. Lord, grant strength to your servant and open the ears and the hearts and the minds of those who hear to hear this gospel and to be comforted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, in the Sundays that I have between now and when Matthew arrives, arrives, in order to be in the pulpit Lord's Day after Lord's Day, <clears throat> I'm doing a walk through selected psalms in the Psalter. And one of my purposes here is just to stir your interest and to stir your minds into doing a nosedive into the arrangement of the Psalms of the Psalter. If you do, it will open up not just the Psalter, but the whole of Scripture to you in ways that you would never imagine. <clears throat> I preach this message, and sometimes I think it goes in one ear and out the other of people. They think, that's neat. That's nice when I point out some of these things. But it will truly be edifying for you if you do. One thing that's important to realize about the Psalms, if you don't know redemptive history, if you don't know the rest of the biblical narrative, you're not going to understand the Psalms. You're not going to understand the Psalms because the Psalms are songs that grow out of that, those redemptive acts of God and those works of God in providence. But the beauty of singing the Psalms is you read things and you think, you know, why are these names in here? What's being described here? If you're really studious about it, then you go back and you search and you see, and you see the narrative in the early portions of Scripture, and then you say, wow. Now I understand this song, and then you're able to sing that song uh, to the Lord. <clears throat> what we've done thus far, we, we revisited Psalms 1 and 2. Then we looked at Psalm 8, Psalm 24, and Psalm 29 thus far. All of those are in Book 1 of the Psalter. Remember, the Psalter is divided into five books. I'm going to talk about that here just in a moment. <clears throat> After those psalms in book one, I'm now jumping to book three. And I have my reasons for doing that. I'm not going to tell you all of those reasons, but I have my, book, my, my reasons for doing that now. Psalm 80 comes in book three of the Psalter. Now let me remind you of those five books. 1 to 41, book one. 42 to 72, book 2, 73 to 89, book 3, 90 to 106, book 4, 107 to 150, book 5. And following Dr. Morales' analysis of the Psalter, the Psalter rooted and grounded in the covenant God made with David and with the history of the Davidic kingdom, there's a chronology that emerges when you look at these five books, so that book one comes under the heading the rise of the Davidic kingdom, book two, the glory of the Davidic kingdom, book three, the collapse 
of the Davidic kingdom. That's where this psalm is. Book 4, the absence of the Davidic kingdom, which corresponds with the exile. And then book 5, the return of the I could go through and demonstrate all of that, but we don't have time to do that this morning. So now we come to Psalm 80, which is in the midst of Book 3, only 17 Psalms in Book 3, under the general heading, The Collapse of the Davidic Kingdom. Now, what are we talking about when we're talking about the collapse of the Davidic Kingdom? Well, the collapse actually begins with Solomon (laughs) right at the end of his reign. Solomon went after the gods of his foreign wives. He ended badly. The kingdom was then divided between the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And then, of course, we read the history of the kings of both Israel in the north and of Judah in the south. And we see this cycling downward, downward, downward until in the end God comes in judgment. Now that judgment happens in phases. In the northern kingdom, judgment came to a head in 722 B.C. It was the Assyrians that came against the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed Samaria, the capital city, and took the ten tribes away into exile and repopulated the land with pagans, 722 B.C. Now, over 130 years later is when judgment comes upon the southern kingdom in Judah. You would think that they would see what happened to their brothers and sisters to the north and say, we better get our act. We better get our act together here because what happened to them could happen to us. But they said, no, no, no. God will never destroy Jerusalem. God will never let anything happen to his temple. And they continued in wickedness. And it happened in phases in Judah as well. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came. He took the best and the finest with him. He actually traveled three weeks on horseback all the way across the desert in order to assume the throne because his father died while he was gone. And he took men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those with him? Then in 597 B.C., he comes against them again. This time he took 10,000 with him in exile, including Ezekiel, who would become Ezekiel the prophet. And in 587, 586 B.C., he came and he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell. The walls were torn to the ground. The temple was destroyed. Not one stone left standing. And he took the rest of the captives into captivity in Babylon, except for the most aged and infirmed, like a man by the name of Jeremiah. The old man Jeremiah was left behind. That is the collapse That's the climactic event of the... Now, this whole book is focused on this collapse. And in the midst of it, there are seven psalms in particular that begin with 77 and end with 83 that focus on this collapse, both of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as well as the promise of restoration. Now, what do you have if you have an odd number of psalms 
You should know this because we saw it with 24 and we saw it with 29. You have an odd number of psalms that are thematically related that are together in the psalm. You might have a chiastic structure, a literary form that's being used. And what do you do to check for sure? You look at the middle psalm. What Dr. Robertson calls, he calls these poetic pyramids, the, 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 the pinnacle psalm. That, that center psalm, your eyes, if you're a Jew reading, would go to the center psalm and say, what does the center psalm have to say? And 80 is our center psalm. Our text is the pinnacle psalm of this poetic pyramid or this chiastic structure. But we're surprised by what we find. At least I was. What would you think it would focus on? If it's talking about the collapse of the Davidic kingdom and God's judgment because of their idolatries, you would think it would focus on the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., right? That's a climactic event. But it doesn't. Psalm 79 describes the collapse and fall of Jerusalem. Psalm 80 describes the collapse and the fall of the northern kingdom and the exile among, by the Assyrians. Now, now, how do we know that? Well, a couple of things. <clears throat> Look at your title again. The title says to the choir master, according to lilies, probably a tune that's being recommended for this psalm to be sung by the choir master, a testimony, that is, it's telling a story, a testimony of Asaph a descendant of the original Asaph who wrote this particular psalm, and then it says a psalm. Now, that's your title. Now, if you had a Septuagint Bible, you know what the Septuagint Bible is? It was a Greek translation that was in use in the days of the apostles. They often quoted from the Septuagint as they were writing in Greek. There's an addition to that title in the Septuagint. It says, to the Assyrian." To the Assyrian. Why would it say to the Assyrian? Because it's the Assyrians who came against the northern kingdom when the northern kingdom collapsed. So that's one clue that you don't even find in your Bible. You have to go to the Septuagint Bible to find it. But whoever translated this added that so people would know this is talking about the fall of the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom to the Assyrian. But there's something else too. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, Dan already rehearsed this for us, which is excellent. When he used Joseph as an example in terms of God's omniscience. Look at what the text says. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And that's why I read from Hebrews chapter 11, those two verses there that centered on Jacob's blessing of Joseph's sons and of Joseph's request that when the Exodus occurs, which is going to be nearly 400 years later, when the Exodus occurs, I want my bones exhumed and I want them to be buried in the Holy Land because what he desired more as his legacy than his ascendance in Egypt was to be buried in the place of promise that was given to his father Abraham. I chose that from Hebrews because that focuses on the faith of both Jacob and his son Joseph. And here we see who leads Joseph like a flock. Now let's continue reading. 
you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Listen to these three names. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Those are not just names that you know. Well, those are tribes of Israel, but I don't know anything about them, so I'm going to go to the next verse. No, they're there for a purpose. And there's that is involved already undergirding this psalm. If you can understand the psalm, you have to remember the narrative and what took place. Why does it say Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh? Okay, I'm going to be running here. You have to have on your thinking cap as you think back to that narrative that took place in the Old Testament. Remember when Jacob blessed his sons. His blessings had prophetic power about his sons and about their descendants in terms of the tribes. When he came to bless his firstborn Reuben, what does he do? He robs him of his heritage as firstborn. Why? Because he desecrated his father's house. He lay with his father's concubine. He then passes over Simeon and Levi because of thirstiness. And then he comes to Judah. What does he say about Judah? The scepter will not leave Judah. And so this is where we get the notion that Messiah, when he comes, will, be, will come from Judah, right? The blessing that comes upon Judah. Okay, skip down through some of the other names. And what do we do? We come down to Joseph. What we see happening, I'm going to summarize it here. What we see happening with Joseph is that the firstborn blessing that would have gone to Reuben is actually divided between Judah and Joseph. Judah gets the rule. The ruler will come from Judah. But the land, in terms of inheritance, goes to Joseph. He gets the double portion. Joseph does. And so the firstborn right comes down to Judah. It's shared, portion by Judah and portion by Joseph. And this is seen, even as we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, that Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. You remember the story? you not? Joseph brings his sons as his father is dying, his father is blind. He positioned them so that Manasseh was in front of Joseph's right hand and Ephraim was in front of his left hand. Why? Because Manasseh is firstborn. That means he gets the blessing of firstborn. What did Jacob do? He crossed the sands. And his right hand went upon Ephraim. His left hand went upon Manasseh. And what happened when he crossed his hands and did that? Joseph protested. This isn't right, Father. I'm paraphrasing a bit here. But this isn't right. Manasseh is the firstborn. Jacob would not revoke his blessing because the firstborn, and God shuffles the deck like this oftentimes, just like he takes it from Reuben. And he passes over Simeon and Levi, and he comes down to Judah, and then down to Joseph, whom he preferred, because why? Joseph was Rachel's. And the blessing comes upon him. The double blessing is seen in his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And in history, what happens? When the kingdom is divided between the north and the south, Ephraim and Manasseh go with the ten tribes in the north. And Ephraim is the most prominent tribe, so much so that sometimes the prophets call Israel Ephraim. 
Ephraim becomes the ascendant tribe in the northern kingdom. This is by prophecy through the, the crossing of his hands and the hand coming upon Ephraim and blessing instead of Manasseh. So here we have in this text a description of those two sons before Ephraim, who's mentioned first, and then Manasseh, who's mentioned second, or we should say last, because there's someone else mentioned in between them. Who is it? It's Benjamin. We're going to spend some time with Benjamin in this sermon. I said you're going to have to put on your thinking caps. You're going to have to stick with me in this because there's a whole lot to unpack here. Benjamin is not Joseph's son. He's Joseph's little brother. And what happened in history is when the kingdom was divided, Benjamin is allied with Judah in the south. Joseph's or tribes that come from him, are a part of the ten tribes to the north. There's purpose in all these things too. Remember what Jeremiah the prophet said in terms of the judgment that was coming, in terms of exile? He described it as Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph taken away into exile 722 B.C. Benjamin taken into exile 6 B.C. She's weeping because she has no more children. And Matthew takes that up and also brings it up in relation to when Herod tried to kill Jesus, remember? And slaughtered the little boys in Bethlehem. Rachel weeping for her children. Where was Rachel buried? Do you remember? Right outside Bethlehem. Where was Benjamin born? He was born in Ephrath, or Ephrathah, Bethlehem, where David would be born, where Jesus would be born. Her tomb was just outside the city, so that if she could hear from her tomb, she would hear the weeping and wailing of mothers who lost their children in the attempt to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how the Lord weaves together the tapestry of redemptive history in this beautiful fashion? Benjamin. What, 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 let's, 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 let's go a little bit further. What did Rachel name Benjamin? Do you remember? She didn't call him Benjamin. Benoni. Do you remember that from the narrative? Why? Well, for one thing, there were complications. She was dying. Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. That's what she named him, son of my sorrow. Was it she sorrowful because she would never let her little baby grow to be the man that he would become, perhaps? Or did she prophetically see what would happen to her descendants, both Joseph and Benjamin, and the judgments that would come? So she's weeping for her children, as Jeremiah tells us. She called him son of my sorrow. But Jacob couldn't call him son of my sorrow after the death of his wife. So he calls him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Now keep that in mind because it comes into play as we get to the last trophy of this particular psalm. 
There's all of this redemptive history is important to understand this song and its placement in the Psalter. Why is this fall here, this psalm here of this fall, rather than five? I think it's because of the messianic content at the end of the psalm. Okay, let's work through it quickly, and then we're going to focus on that last strophe. This is a lamentation. It's a call, a cry to God, how long before you hear our cries, how long before you save us? Stir up your right hand, verse 2, and come to save us. And then there's this refrain that's repeated three times. We find it in verse 3, we find it in verse 7, we find it in verse 19. And that refrain is, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Three times that is repeated in this psalm. It's a cry for salvation to God. Countenance would shine on them once again rather than his countenance falling in displeasure of them because of their sin. That he would be a covenant-keeping God, that he would be faithful, that he would restore them so that they could walk in faithfulness to him. That's the gospel itself. So they're crying out for salvation. Look, the lamentation, four to six, how long? O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread of tears and give them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. How long are you going to leave us in this condition? That's the lamentation. And then, of course, the refrain is repeated again, a cry for salvation. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then the psalmist turns to remind God of how he has blessed them in the past. Look at what he says. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea. It shoots to the river. God, remember when you blessed us, we came into this land. We were like a vine that was planted. and that, that vine then spread over the whole of the land, providing fruit of plenty for all. That's what their circumstances were when they came into the promised land. You remember what happened when Moses sent the spies into the land right after Sinai? He told them, bring back the produce and bring back a report. They come back, they bring back the produce. <laughs> what do they bring? They bring a cluster of grapes that's so heavy it takes two men to hold it on a pole between them. Grapes aplenty. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. And Caleb and Joshua said, this is a land flowing with milk and honey, an opportunity. Look at what God's providing for us. And the other ten spies that went in said, but there are giants in the land. They're too strong for us. And the ten prevailed. And the children of Israel forsook the Lord. They would not listen to Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the other ten. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day that the spies were in, in the Holy Land doing their espionage. 
one year for every day so that the entire first generation that came out of Egypt perished in the wilderness. It was the second generation that entered, other than Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two from the first generation that were able to enter. This is God's chastising judgment even after his salvation during the wilderness wanderings that took place. Guess what? No grapes. 40 years. No wine. Not a single cup of wine. No grapes. There were none in the wilderness. None. And then what does the Lord do? He plants Israel as a vine in the land. It spreads and it covers the land. God's blessing, his shalom, his prosperity upon the land flowing with milk and honey and flowing with grapes and wine. That's the picture of the life they had because they were redeemed by God and brought into this place of promise. And yet, what did they do? They squandered it. They presumed upon God's grace. They fell into idolatry, and God comes in judgment against them. And this is the cry. Remember what we once were. Remember how you blessed us before. Oh, Lord, save us and do it again. That's the call of this psalm. Verses 12 and 13. This is what you did before. Now he says, Why have you broken down its wall so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the harvest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. It's left for wild beasts and for pagans. That's the situation. And then we see the call to turn again, and this is, this is full of messianic reference that's exceedingly deep. I'm sorry I'm taking a long time here, but there's a whole lot, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish this. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Noted that expression already, right hand. For the son whom you made strong for yourself. Note, son whom you made strong for yourself. Remember Benjamin's name, son of my See the imagery here laid out. They've burned it with fire. They have cut it down. They have perished at the rebuke. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let, now listen, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, whom you have made strong for yourself. This whole strophe is a play upon Benjamin's name. You don't understand that unless you understand what Benjamin's name means. It means son of my right hand. But this isn't Benjamin. They're saying, save us. They're saying, send us a Savior. Send us a Savior who will save us. Send us a son of your right hand. Send us the Son of Man. Son of Man. Do you remember the title? It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Jesus is the Son of Man who came to save and restore. This is about Messiah. But there's something else I want to work out here. There is in Jewish tradition the notion that there's going to be two Messiahs. One from Joseph, based upon this psalm, and also from the blessing that Jacob pronounced upon Joseph. And one from Judah. Of course, the one from 
Joseph to save the northern kingdom that had been taken away into exile, the one from Judah to save the southern kingdom that was exiled. There is this in among rabbinic teachings there of a Joseph Messiahship. Some actually say, well, no, the J Joseph Messiah will be a forerunner. And, 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 and the Judah Messiah will be the Messiah Messiah. Of course, remember, Jews today don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, this is talking about Messiah in relation to Joseph, but not by blood. And I want you to understand this. And this is, this is what Dan brought out beautifully in Sunday school this morning. We're to think about Joseph as a type of Messiah. You see, the Messiah that comes from Judah, the Messiah that comes from David, you think of in terms of conquering king. But there's another biblical picture of Messiah's work in the Old Covenant that is oftentimes obscured and lost. And that is that that parallels the life of Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Joseph had a gift of revelation. Maybe he wasn't wise in the way he shared it with his brothers. <laughs> But they said, we're going to kill him. They would have killed him in the wilderness had Reuben not interceded and saying, no, don't kill him. So they threw him down in a pit. And they would have left him in the pit to die. The pit had no water in it. Water comes in and he drowns. Or he dies of exposure. He's thrown into the pit. Then they see a caravan coming and Judah says... You know, why let him die out here? We can get something from him. <laughs> Let's sell him into slavery, which is what they did. The brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites, <laughs> descendants of Ishmael, sold them to the, the son of bondage, <laughs> sold them to his descendants, and then they take him away into Egypt. And what do the brothers do? Well, what are we going to tell father? So they take the coat and they kill an animal. They put its blood all over it. They tear up his coat, his favored coat, the coat of many colors. Nobody else had a coat of many colors because Joseph is favored by his father. They all knew it. Into their jealousy. And they took their coat to their father and said, look at what we found. Our brother has been devoured by wild beast. And he could not be consoled. To Jacob, Joseph was dead. Dead and buried. Even coming into Egypt, what happens? He finds himself in Potiphar's house. He will not yield to Potiphar's wife. She has vengeance against him. He finds himself where? In the pit again, in a dungeon. But because of the gift of revelation that God gave to him, he is raised out of that pit to the second to the right hand of Pharaoh himself, to a place of glory. Just as Dan told us this morning in Sunday school, verbatim. You see, messian the messianic ministry, the mission of Messiah, is just as conquering king, but is his suffering servant. It's as one who would go down in the pit, one who would be crucified, who would be buried, who would be raised to the dead, be exalted to the right hand of God, to sit down at the right hand. God. Joseph is a type of Christ in terms of his redemptive work and ministry. Just like Joseph 
forgave and received his own brothers back and made provision for them. Yes, there is a Joseph Messiahship, but not by blood. These two strains don't will not come to pass in terms of two people, but they come together in one. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This text is about Christ. And of course, Benjamin was allied with Judah in the south. We know when that took place. Now, what can we take from this? Oh, we see Messiah. But we all see ourselves in the wilderness, don't we? Chuck mentioned it when he said, you know, pray for our country. It's so discouraging. And it is. It's heart-rending what we see. And we look at the church, which is more and more marginalized. Today, you stand for biblical truth. You are labeled immediately a bigot with a high hand and a loud voice to silence you from saying what the Word of God says. Uh, apart from revival, I don't see that changing anytime soon. That God can bring revival. When the people of God find themselves suffering, the world around says, well, look at them. There's the cry, Lord, have mercy upon us again for your name's sake, for the sake of Almighty God. But we need to realize as we read redemptive history in the Old Testament that we live in the wilderness. This age is the wilderness. We have no continuing city here. It's there at heaven. It's in the new heavens, the new earth to come in the future. We live life here and now in light of then. But here and now, our life is a life of suffering. We shouldn't be surprised. What happened to Jesus? And we're in him. But as we cry out, save us. We're looking to the end of this age. And he who ascended to the right hand of the Father is coming again in the clouds of glory. And when he does, everyone will sit up and take notice. Everyone will see him for who he is. And we just pray, Maranatha, come quickly. Do it, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for this text. It, it's much too full to deal with in one sermon. Father, we see your, your, your hand at work in your providence in history, in, in this story of redemption that is no wonder the angels in heaven look upon it as it unfolds and rejoice and marvel in awe at the beauty and the intricacy of your plan and your purpose that comes to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, let us rest in you and not be overwhelmed in this age. For Lord Jesus, you have conquered already. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.